0: morning's scripture reading is from proverbs 5 1 to 14 if you have a bible please turn and read along for the bible's on the seats that's page 497 my son be attentive to my wisdom incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge for the lips of a forbidden woman honey, and her speech is smoother than oil but in the end she is bitter as wormwood sharp as a two-edged sword her feet go down to death Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of her mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Lest you give your honor to others, and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan, when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say how i hated discipline and my heart despised reproof i did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors i am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation let's pray father god thank you so much for your word father it's a light to our feet and a lamp to our path god and i just pray today that we would incline our ear to hear your wisdom and that we would take it to heart jesus and live it out in faithful obedience in your name i pray Amen."
1: Please keep your Bible open, Proverbs chapter 5. It's going to be helpful for you to track along. As we continue in our series uh, in Proverbs called Get Wisdom. In February uh, this year, Kate Forbes shocked Scotland by saying sex is for marriage. I'm sure you can remember that when they hit the, the headlines. She said that sex is for marriage. And the reason it shocked our nation Is because most people today, including even some people or churches who would call themselves Christians, no longer hold to a biblical and what has been a substantially historical understanding of sex and marriage. But the reality is, this consensus within our culture and even in aspects or parts of the church is proving itself to be deeply damaging. The damage is easy to see all around us. We just need to look at our town, look at the headlines. Maybe we've been damaged personally. It's a consensus which ultimately rejects God and robs us, humanity, of God's beautiful design for sex and for marriage. Uh, the author, preacher, Christopher Ashe, in his book, Remaking a Broken World, speaking to the breakdown of family, says this. When the core structure of the family breaks down and sexual intimacy overflows outside of marriage, It is only a matter of time before whole societies break down. The historian J.D. Unwin studied 86 different societies spanning 5,000 years. He found an unexpected correlation between sexual faithfulness within marriage and the ability of a society to grow and remain healthy. He concluded this, In human records, there is no instance of a society retaining its energy after a completely new generation has inherited a tradition which does not insist upon no sex before marriage and sexual faithfulness within marriage. Proverbs 5 this morning brings us some much-needed wisdom into the chaos of our culture, but not just of our culture, of our own hearts. Some much-needed wisdom when it comes to sex and marriage. It brings an extremely sobering, realistic and accurate analysis of what happens when we abandon God's beautiful design for sex and marriage. But it's not all doom and gloom, okay? Let me just say that up front. It's not all doom and gloom. It doesn't just warn us and paint a a picture of the consequences which we need to be aware of. It also provides a beautiful alternative, provides a beautiful vision, a better story of what sex and marriage can and always was meant to look like. So whether you're married or not here this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, Proverbs 5 has some much-needed wisdom that we all need when it comes to marriage and sex. If you're not a Christian here this morning, or maybe you're a new Christian, then let me just um, ask you or encourage you to consider how God's design for sex and marriage, which is totally counter-cultural here, don't pretend otherwise, let me ask you to consider how God's design is both beautiful and worthy of your obedience. Let me ask you to compare it to the the no fault divorce, casual sexual encounter, consent as the only moral stipulation, pornographic culture, my body, my choice approach to sex, and marriage which is wreaking devastation on our culture and on our community. And if you are a Christian here this morning, married or not, let's be reminded and recommit ourselves to the goodness and the beauty of God's design. Let's consider the devastation of disobeying his design, and let's recommit in the strength of the Spirit and with the grace of Christ to obey it faithfully. So the big thing we're going to see here this morning, the unique contribution that Proverbs 5 makes to this area of sex and marriage is this. Don't be fooled by forbidden sexual pleasure, which seems great, but ultimately will lead to ruin and death. Don't be fooled by forbidden sexual pleasure, which seems great, but ultimately leads to ruin and death. first thing we see together this morning is this: in the sight of god we're going to start at the end of the chapter this week we don't usually do that but we're going to start at the end verses 21 to 23 to give us the context for what we're about to see in verses one to 20 we're going to start the way um, traditional marriage ceremonies start okay the way traditional marriage vows start okay my outline this morning is based on those traditional vows. if you remember I most my ceremony start, dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the sight of God. We're gathered here in the sight of God. If you look down at verse 21, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Christian or not, we all live in full view of God, of our creator. He sees everything. He even sees right into uh, the very recesses of our hearts. He, he sees us when no one else sees us. We must live in light of that. We must recognize that we are primarily and ultimately accountable to him. We live all of our lives in the sight of God. So so often we hear, don't we, whatever you do in the privacy of your own home or the privacy of your whole life, that's up to you. No no one can tell you what to do in the, the privacy of your own life, the privacy of your own home. It's not true. God does tell us how we are to live, even in the privacy of our own homes. Proverbs 15, 3 The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So when it comes to marriage and sex, we must live according to God's commands and in light of God's coming judgment. That's what we're being reminded of in these verses. We must live in the fear of the Lord. Hasn't Proverbs been telling us that? Hasn't it been hammering that home to us? We are to live in the fear of the Lord. That's really the same thing. To live in the sight of God is to live in the fear of the Lord, to recognize that he sees and that we are accountable to him. Listen again to the traditional marriage language, the the marriage liturgy, which we so often hear. It, It reflects that. It reflects the fear of the Lord. Marriage is to be entered into reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God. And the marriage, traditional marriage charge, which you maybe don't hear as often at marriage ceremonies these days, says this. The person conducting would turn to the bride and the groom and say this, I require and charge you both as you will answer at the dreadful day of judgment. Yeah, that's maybe why you don't hear it so much. The dreadful day of judgment when the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed. That if either of you know any impediment why you may not be lawfully joined together in matrimony, you do now confess it we're honest that's not how we often approach marriage it's not how we often approach sexuality it's primarily about doing what's right in our own eyes what's pleasurable in our own eyes rather than in God's what happens when we don't live in the sight of God when we don't live in the fear of the Lord we'll look down at verses 22 to 23 the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of sin he dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly he is led astray Today, we often think that doing what we want sexually, sleeping with whoever we want, fantasizing about whoever we want is a freeing thing. It's the best way to live. Verses 22 to 23 tell us the complete opposite. It doesn't lead to freedom. Our sin and lack of self-control leads to slavery, entrapment, and ultimately death, eternal death. But what happens when we do live in the fear of the Lord? What happens when we do live before the Lord in the sight of God as those who will be held to account by Him? We've been seeing it throughout all these four chapters. It leads to the righteous path. It leads to the, the good way of life. It leads to life both now and in all its fullness in eternity. It leads to peace. It leads to joy. It leads to honor. It leads to security and it leads to happiness. That's the alternative. So we're to live in the sight of God. Let us ask ourselves this morning then this. Is there an area of our lives, and not just with respect to sex and marriage, is there an area of our lives right now where we are covering something up and we hope that no one will ever see it? Maybe it's something of a sexual nature. Maybe it's a financial thing. Maybe it's relational, anger, manipulation, abusive, coercive behavior. Maybe it's an addiction that we hope no one will ever find out about. Maybe it's something we've said about someone behind our back. Slander or gossip. Here's the reality. God sees it. God saw it. He sees our hearts. He sees our whole lives. And if it isn't already, it will entrap you. It will ensnare you. It will be revealed before the Lord on judgment day. Let's make no mistake about that. And one of the things that often causes us to keep our sin hidden, isn't it? It's it's that we fear the consequences. We keep our sin hidden because we fear the fallout. We fear the, the consequences more than we fear the Lord. That's why ultimately we keep our sin hidden. We fear the consequences more than we fear the Lord. The latter fear of the Lord leads to real repentance It can actually lead to change and to grace and forgiveness and to joy. The former leads to just keeping it covered up. Or at best, maybe a cheap kind of repentance or just worldly regret. If we only regret being caught, we will never repent before God. And almost certainly we will find ourselves in a continual pattern of hiding the same sin and repeating it over again. That's why one of the most important things you can ever pray for your heart and the hearts of those sitting beside you this morning is that you would fear the Lord. That you would fear the Lord. That you wouldn't fear consequences, but would come to the Lord in repentance and receive forgiveness. And that forgiveness is available. Okay, there's some hard things to hear this morning. I'm not pretending that. But let me just remind you forgiveness is available. We have a Savior, Jesus. Jesus, who lived a perfect God-fearing life on this earth for us, when we turn from our sin, turn from our hidden sin, we can be forgiven. We can be free from the guilt and the shame which so often weighs us down. We can know the joy of repentance. We can know the freedom of being forgiven, even if it requires doing hard things. And when we do that, when we trust in Jesus, God no longer looks at us in judgment, but with eyes of mercy. So as Christians, we're still to live in light of that final judgment. We will still all have to come before the judgment seat of Christ. So what we do now still matters. We're still to live in the fear of the Lord. But if we are in Christ, we no longer need to look towards that day with an outright dread and fear. We're to look forward to it reverently and rejoicing. We can look forward to it with rejoicing if we're in Christ. So in the sight of God second thing, I will forsake all others, verses 1 to 14. You look down at verses 1 to 2. Again, we get that call um, to, to get wisdom so that we might be discerning and wise, okay? Be attentive, incline your ear, keep discretion. We, we get that call again to get wisdom uh, and discernment and, and wisdom, uh, particularly when it comes to temptation and sexual temptation, which is at the forefront of this passage, Just a couple of things to note as we dive into these uh, 14 verses and into the rest of the chapter. In the Bible, adultery is used as a picture of our spiritual unfaithfulness towards the Lord. So, So the primary application here is sex and marriage, sexual immorality, but we can also broaden the application to all forms of sexual immorality, lust, fantasizing, polygamy, homosexuality, open relationships, and even broader again to the patterns of sin and temptation which we face in our lives. The adulterous wife here, which we encounter, represents not just sexual immorality, but spiritual adultery. Okay? So keep that in mind as we apply this passage. Second thing to note is that the adulterous uh, person is, is a woman, uh, it's, it's not that just women um, do these things. It is, she's representative. It's not just a woman trying to suggest men. Okay? It goes both ways. But in Proverbs, the, the adulterous person is represented here by a woman. So it goes both ways. Third thing, let's make sure we have a clear definition of marriage. Okay, I don't want to assume anything. And we shouldn't ever assume either, especially as we encounter people in our day-to-day lives. What is marriage? Marriage is a good gift from God to humanity. That's where we should start. It's a good gift from God to humanity to be enjoyed, to be used for ultimately His purposes and His glory. He created it to be a lifelong monogamous, covenantal union, okay, not just some kind of cheap contract, convenient contract, covenantal union between one man and one woman. And marriage defined as that is the only context in scripture is the only context for any form of sexual intimacy. Therefore, God calls us to, to not just live sexually pure lives outside of marriage, but also within it. So with those three things in mind, here are the two big things we see in in verses 1 to 14. If we are to forsake all others, if we are to hold to that vow, we must see past the seduction and consider the consequences. Verses 1 to 6 really kind of pull the curtains back from the the nature of seduction, of temptation and and of sin. The, The lips and the words of the forbidden woman seem sweet. They seem smooth. They're easy to listen to. They're tempting. Sin, sexual sin, will entice us. It will lure us. It will pull us in. It will appear. It will appear on the surface sweet and satisfying. It will try to draw us into a more exciting story. Hey, here's a more exciting way to live. Here's a a more pleasurable way of life, a more exhilarating experience maybe notice it in verse six why 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 does or sorry in verses three and four why does he focus on her words and not her physical appearance because so often in society isn't it we think it's the appearance it's the image which leads us astray why the words and we saw that already back in chapter two because the heart of the battle when it comes to sin and sexual sin particularly is not ultimately what we look at though that counts we thought about that last week it's the lies we've chosen to believe in our hearts if our eyes are drifting it's because our hearts are already doubting It's how it was in genesis 3 at the fall when our first parents sinned it began with what did god say and with that doubt and that lies implanted in the heart it was then that the forbidden foot became pleasing to the eyes The seductive nature of sin is this. It entices our hearts with a better but false story. There's lies behind it. What is that better story of sin and sexual temptation? It's this. You deserve this. You deserve an escape. Yeah, your spouse hasn't shown you enough attention. It's their fault. You have the right to do this. Sure, it won't harm anyone else. No one will ever have to find out. I know you feel rejected. Come and feel respected and loved. It'll feel good. And it's so easy. There's no commitment involved. And you know what? There's probably not going to be much consequence. That's the lies behind our sexual temptation. Seduction seems sweet like honey. It tastes good. It's hard to resist. It appears harmless, but verse 4 tells us sweet turns to bitter. Smooth turns to sharp the picture there is of wormwood which i had to look up potentially poisonous toxic serious side effects vomiting hallucinations and seizures we take too much of it in and then the picture of a sword is uh, the smooth words turn sharp the sword cuts us it injures us and ultimately can kill us in the words of thomas brooke the puritan sin and temptation present the be it they hide the hook presents the bait looks great tastes great seems great but the hook is hidden the hook is there it will eventually get us and verses five to six tell us it will eventually kill us if we persist unrepentantly the picture in verses 5 to 6 is this if we continue if we indulge in this temptation, if we indulge in temptation and sin, and put our we are essentially putting our lives in the hand of someone who is blind, who is blinding, blindingly dragging us to death. See past the seduction, see past the momentary pleasure to what lies behind it. And consider the consequences. Verses seven to fourteen, we see. The consequences of giving in to this temptation played out in the light of the hidden deadly dangers of the forbidden woman of temptation to sin. Do you notice verses 8 to 9? Keep far from her, okay? Verse 9, don't, sorry, verse 8, don't go near her door. This woman is not to be played with. Don't go up and and even even knock and, and then turn around. Don't even go near her. Stay far away from her. Don't flirt with sex. Don't flirt with temptation. It will promise you something sweet and pleasurable and then the hook will come out and kill you. And if that wasn't enough of a warning, consider the consequences here laid out in the rest of these verses of sexual sin, of adultery, of sexual immorality. Here's what it'll cost you. Here's what it'll cost me if we go down this route unrepentantly. It will cost us our honor, verse 9. She promises reputation and respect. She will give us nothing but shame and disgrace. It will cost us time, verse 9 as well. She will offer you a moment, a second of pleasure. It will cost you years of your life. The consequences will linger, maybe even for a lifetime. It will cost you your strength and hard work. She promises reward. She promises relaxation. She will rob you of everything you've ever worked hard to build. It will cost you regret, verses 11 to 12. She promises joy and relief. All you'll be left with is regret and it will cost you public disgrace. Verse 14, you notice, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. She promises you private pleasure, but in the end, it will lead to public ruin and disgrace. If you look around our world and in our town and even sometimes in our lives, you will see those consequences all over the place. Consider then the man or the woman who commits adultery. Maybe it began with sweet words of affirmation or flattery. A text here, or a text there. You believe the lies. I deserve this. I deserve this attention. My wife or husband doesn't listen to me or love me anymore. It then leads to an affair. Those moments of forbidden pleasure feel so good, but they will cost you will cost you shame and guilt it will cost you years reputationally relationally the damage can last a long time it will leave you with regret and it may begin private but it will lead to public ruin it will eventually come out either in this life or on the day of judgment and the fallout extends to family friends and society your decisions don't affect do affect more than just your life and the life of the people directly involved it affects everyone Common argument for doing whatever we like when it comes to sex and marriage is that it doesn't hurt anyone else. We can do what we want in private because the consequences of our sexual choices, they don't impact those closest to us. But that's not true. It's not true. It affects us, it affects our friends, it affects our family, and it affects our society. I remember reading a a while ago, it came to my mind, a study last year that was released that revealed that parental divorce has a larger impact than parental death on the educational development of children. Consequences aren't just ourselves. I also saw this past week, something came out in the news. A person involved in the adult entertainment industry revealing that for all the money she has gained, she is shamed over it every day of her life. And that she's lost her whole family because of her choices. The same goes for other sexual immorality. Persistently looking at things which create lust in our hearts from Instagram pictures to pornographic material to premarital sex. All these things seem sweet, but they produce bitter consequences. Just to say as well far too often can I'm included in this far too often in the church. We have been are guilty of rolling our eyes and totting when it comes to the sexual behavior and beliefs of our culture their beliefs, their practices, whilst being hypocrites when it comes to things like adultery, premarital sex, and pornography. As Christian magazine is subscribed to you, I was just reading it yesterday, and it says this in one of the articles. As the line of morality in the culture continues to be pushed back further, we forget that the one commandment that addresses sexual morality begins not with homosexuality, but adultery. This means that for us to be uncompromised as Christians in the face of these new challenges, we must first honour God's standard of sexuality in our own marriages. This also requires training our children in sexual purity, speaking to them of the sexual perversions of pornography and premarital sex. In what ways do Christians, in what ways do we need to repent in what ways do we need to repent so that the high standard of moral purity might be demonstrated before the world, for the world as a witness to the proper creational sexual ethic? We must remember that. We must keep that in mind. We mustn't be hypocrites when it comes to these things. As sexual sin, what about sin in general? The invitation here is to see past the immediate pleasure. To see past the immediate pleasure. To see past the high to see past the venting of your anger to the consequences that will come after it, to see past the wealth gained illegally, instantaneously, to consider the consequences and to believe and embrace the better story of the gospel, to believe and embrace and live out the better news of the gospel. What is that better story then? What is the better story that our hearts need to grab onto and believe and treasure and trust if we are not to go down this path? What is the good news here, it is this, that Jesus, the perfectly loving and faithful bridegroom, came into the world to redeem and to forgive a spiritually and sexually adulterous bride, the church, you and me. He came to cleanse us, to, to clean us, to wash us, to forgive us, and to redeem us of all our past sexual sin and of all our future sin. He offers healing you feel broken in this area this morning he offers healing and redemption to our sexually broken lives our broken marriages our past divorces he doesn't just leave those things in tatters and only he can do that and he lovingly wants to do that hear that this morning he is the friend of sinners he loves the unlovely and though we may still carry some earthly consequences to a certain extent Because of Jesus, we should never have to carry the shame and guilt of our sin. He takes that. When we repent of our sin before God and before those who we have wronged in the midst of what we've done, we can be forgiven and we can be freed and we can experience fullness of life now and into eternity. And then when we choose to follow Him, He changes us, He renews our desires, He gives us new hearts. He puts his spirit within us and enables us to live according to the sexual ethic he calls us to, which is beautiful, which is good, which is joyful and fulfilling. So don't believe the lies that the world tells you. See past the seduction. Don't believe the lies that your own heart will sometimes try to tell you. Believe the good news of Jesus and believe the goodness of God's commands. Finding joy and fulfillment in Jesus in that better story will guard our hearts. And for those who are married, finding joy in your spouse sexually will also guard and bring joy to your heart. That's the third thing we see together this morning. In the sight of God, I will forsake all others, and thirdly, keep only unto you. Let me just read verses 15 to 20, if you read along with me, please. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? So the Bible here and in other places is unashamed about the beauty and the pleasure of sexual intimacy within the context of marriage. We shouldn't blush at these things. Sex is a beautiful gift from God to be enjoyed within marriage and there's a couple of key things here we are to see. Exclusivity and enjoyment. Verses 15 to 17 are all about exclusivity They stress that if we are married, we must not look outside of our marriage for sexual fulfillment, for sexual intimacy. We're not to to share ourselves sexually with anyone apart from our spouse. Monogamy, contrary to popular belief, is the best way to be sexually fulfilled. We are not missing out by committing to monogamous covenant marriage. Why? Because that's how God designed it. That's how he designed it to be. Big reason why lifelong exclusivity when it comes to sexual intimacy within marriage is so necessary and so fulfilling is because sex is more than just a physical act. It's not just two bodies uniting together. It's, as we thought about last week, it's two embodied souls uniting together, two embodied hearts. It's a deeply vulnerable self-disclosing act where two people are united as one flesh. So within the the context of monogamous marriage over time it acts like a glue increasingly binding the married couple in love and in intimacy. Their souls are so to speak knit together over time that's the beauty of monogamy and of sex within it. But the opposite repeated acts of sexual intimacy outside of that context outside the commitment and love of covenant marriage is the equivalent of continually ripping off a yellow sticky note and seeking to reapply it. Eventually, it won't stick so well anymore. It's the equivalent of ripping off a yellow sticky note and reapplying it continually. Eventually, it won't want to stick anymore. Now, for the Christian, there is hope and redemption for our sexual sin. But if we persist in this way, we will do damage to our souls and to our bodies. They weren't meant to be treated like that. So if you're married, it's kind of very simple. Don't look elsewhere, either physically or through fantasy. Don't look elsewhere for sexual fulfillment. Remain exclusively faithful to your spouse. Exclusivity and then enjoyment in verses 18 to 20. And enjoyment's a really weak word here. It's two E's, that's why I used it, but it's a really weak word here. The better word is intoxicate. Intoxicate yourself with your spouse. That's what we see in those verses. Verse 19, be intoxicated. Okay, and if, I don't know about your Bible, my Bible has a footnote there. If you look down, it says, um, also can mean led astray. Can also mean led astray. So here's one area of your life where you should be led astray. Compare that to the end of the chapter. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly he is led astray. That's a led astray. You don't want to go down. Here's one you can go down and you should go down. Be intoxicated with your spouse. Sex is a great gift to be fully enjoyed in the context of marriage. So if you're married, let me say this this morning, do not neglect one another sexually. Have sex regularly. Regularly approach sex with an attitude of service and sacrifice understand sex as a source of pleasure and as a means of protection we thought about that back in first Corinthians seven don't stay apart for too long regular sex within marriage serves as a means of protection against temptation and the devil who would like to get a foothold in between you and your spouse Let me just say, too, not being sexually satisfied in marriage is never an excuse for going outside your marriage and looking for it elsewhere. Work through that prayerfully together, patiently together. Navigate the changing circumstances and seasons of marriage when it comes to sex. Do that with patience and understanding and much communication. Be prepared okay, in, our today, in today's culture and in today's world Be prepared to work hard to change your view of sex given past, present sexual sin and the nature of the pornified culture that we live in. Be prepared to work hard to change your view of your spouse and of sex. Understand that in the words of Tim Chester in his marriage prep book which have always kind of stuck with me, good sex begins long before you take your clothes off. Pursue one another emotionally and relationally, not just sexually. And don't forget the giver of the gift of sex. Sex is meant to point us to him, to the intimacy of marriage, to the one who has given us the gift. It's meant to remind us of the the love of Christ for his bride, the church. Seek joy and fulfillment then ultimately in the giver of the gift, not the gift itself. Seek assurance and satisfaction and fulfillment of the reality of Christ's love for you, the church. That will serve your marriage. That will serve your sexual intimacy with your spouse. And that seeking of Christ, that seeking of the giver above the gift, therefore applies to the unmarried too. It means cultivating contentment in Christ. That's your biggest need. That's all of our biggest need. Married or not, if you desire sexual intimacy as an unmarried person, then pursue marriage if the Lord would gift that to you. We saw that as well in First Corinthians seven. You're free to, to pursue that. But until then, if the Lord would give that to you, you must pursue purity. We must all pursue purity, just in different contexts. One married, one unmarried. And for those who are unmarried, pursuing purity now is not only obedient to the Lord, it will preserve a future marriage. It will protect a future marriage. It's not that the sin we bring into marriage and the baggage we bring in can't be healed and dealt with and there can be great change, but we should strive to protect a future marriage as much as we can. To the unmarried, recognize that sexual purity is not a lesser option. You are not missing out. Sex is a great gift from the Lord, but it is not an essential aspect of what it means to be human. Then we see verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Given what we've just seen, given the joy that is available in marriage, why would you go elsewhere? Don't be a fool. It's lesser. It will rob you. It will reap significant consequences upon you. Why would you do that? For the married, you have a beautiful spouse to enjoy. For the married and the unmarried, you have Christ. For all of us, we have Christ. We don't need to look elsewhere. See these marriage vows as a commitment to him. In the sight of God, I will forsake all others and keep only unto you, but much more so see them as commitments that he has made to us in his love and in his mercy and in his grace. His commitments to us as our bridegroom. So let's not be fooled by forbidden sexual pleasure, which seems great, seems sweet, seems exciting, but there's a hook behind it. It will lead to ruin, and ultimately, if we persist in it, to death. We are to pursue sexual faithfulness, both within marriage and outside of it. We are to soberly consider the consequences of disobeying these things and we're to enjoy good, god's good gift of sex within marriage as a means of pleasure and protection i know right that all of us have messed up in this area in some shape or form either past present or maybe in the future we have all messed up when it comes to these things in different ways we still will what is our hope then? Does our past sin, our present sin, spoil our future? The answer is no. In Christ, it doesn't have to. Through trusting in Christ, we can be forgiven of all of our sexual sin. Our guilt can be cancelled. We can gain eternal life. We have been set free. In Christ we are no longer enslaved to sin, to sexual sin. We now have new spirit-empowered hearts within us. We have renewed desires within us. And if you are in Christ this morning, consider yourself dead to these things and alive to God. Consider yourself dead to these things. These things in Christ no longer define your life. He is changing you. He's changing your desires. He is helping us to obey his commands and to experience the joy of that. Therefore, let us pursue a sexually pure life for his glory and in the confidence of his grace. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the unconditional love of christ for the love that he has shown us as a bridegroom and coming to save us father even though we are so unfaithful towards you even though we commit spiritual adultery against you father you still love us you still send jesus to come into the world and redeem us and clean us and wash us and give us a future and give us hope and for this father we're so so thankful Father, help us to live out these things faithfully. Father, we recognize that these things are hard, but yet you give us all the help we need. And so we pray that you would help us to draw comfort from that and that you would help us to trust you and to obey you in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.